Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Leona Godin. He sounds exactly like the audible version of the narrator who reads The Thin Man, and I'm not even getting paid by Audible to say that. That and more, but before that, you know this is gift-buying season, and that is why I want this song running through your mind everywhere you go. Have you bought the Risk book yet? If you have, buy more for friends. There are all new versions of classic stories and six never heard before elsewhere. There's a bunch of famous people in it. Say what? And Q&A with all the authors. The Risk book has stories that are funny and scary and lovely and totally fucked up. The perfect gift to give to friends. And it's getting all kinds of raves. On audiobook, ebook, and paperback. Where books are sold or theriskbook.com. Buy the risk Right this holiday season, get the Risk book for your friends, your family. It's affordable. It's a gift that everyone can enjoy. It's so chock full of funny stories and spooky stories and beautiful stories. There must be at least a few people in your life who would love it. So go get the Risk book. Get extra copies this holiday season to give out as gifts. Anywhere the books are sold, of course, you can find it at Amazon. You can leave us a good review there as well, or just look us up at theriskbook.com. If you have friends who might prefer to get it in the form of audiobook or ebook, it's available those ways too. Get the Risk Book, motherfuckers. And now, here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Cassius behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode 
quality time. Three stories by people who realized that the time they were spending with some of the loved ones in their lives was especially precious. In a little bit, we're going to hear an extraordinary story that was shared by Charlie Rucker the last time we were in Portland, Oregon. But before that, a story that was shared the last time we were in Denver, Colorado by the remarkable Leona Godin. You can find Leona a couple of places online. You can find her magazine about smell and taste at aromaticapoetica.com and she writes about blindness and diversity at drmlgodin.com. That's G-O-D-I-N. And here she is now at the Risk Live Show in Denver, Colorado. It's a story we call the blind feeding the lame. So I was 19 years old and I was planning a three and a half month long backpacking tour with my best friend Indigo when my relatives began to ask if I was going to get in touch with my father in Europe and I, and I was like, probably not. Um, Indigo and I had big plans of like hanging out in seedy youth hostels and chasing after European hotties. <laughs> And you're probably like, wait, is she really blind? Like, what does she mean by hot exactly? Well, two things. Uh, One, we have our ways. And two, back then when I was 19, I was just a little bit blind. Like, just a a little bit blind. So I I didn't use a cane or a dog or anything, and and, um, I could walk around just fine. And... and, um, I couldn't see details very well, like people's faces, so that's where Indigo would come in handy and she'd be like, he's cute. He's looking at you. Go get him. And I would. So, so these are the kinds of things, these are the kinds of things I was thinking about, not getting in touch with my estranged father. You see, I didn't know my dad growing up. Um, my parents got divorced when I was three, and my dad was in the military, and so he lived all over the world, in Turkey and Italy and Thailand and now Germany. And uh, I grew up in San Francisco with my mother. And uh, I hadn't even seen him since I was like 10 years old, and he had returned to San Francisco for his mother's funeral, and, uh, and he was with his new wife. And um, it was around that time, around the age of 10, that I was diagnosed with my uh, degenerative eye disease that very, very, very slowly, like I cannot say very enough times to tell you how slow uh, the degeneration was while I moved from being a visually impaired person to being blind. So I hadn't even corresponded with my father since maybe five years when I was 15 and I was kind of sick of these cards that I would get for my birthday and for Christmas that had a check for 25 bucks and they said, love daddy. And uh, I wrote him and I said, you know, I don't know who this daddy character is. Um, If you want to have a real relationship with me, wonderful. But if not, then just don't bother. And he didn't. So yeah, I was not real keen on getting another rejection from him. So we, we, uh, my best friend calls me on the night before we're to set out on our three and a half month long backpacking tour of Europe and she says, I hurt my knee. And it would turn out that she'd actually torn a ligament in her knee. But we did not know that, so we blithely take off for Europe and we arrive in Frankfurt in the early morning hours and there's like porn stores in the airport and, and I'm wheeling Indigo around in a wheelchair that the airport gave to us because they saw that we were struggling. And I begin to think that maybe hotties and hostels are a little out of our league. And I decided to take my mom's very sound advice before I left and she said, you might want to use your military dependent card and go to the Wiesbaden Military Hotel. And so we do this, we get to our room and Indigo promptly passes out from pain and pain pills. And so I decided to try to go out on the town by myself. And this is 
decades before my trusty talking iPhone gave me access to like GPS and maps and, and endless you know, uh, travel guides and what have you. So I just go out and I get lost. And uh, it starts its brutal German raining on top of me. And I, and I somehow managed to flag a taxi and I get back to the hotel. I'm defeated and I start to think about calling my dad. And it's out of boredom and frustration, but I also start to think that maybe my dad and his nurse practitioner wife might be able to help us get our trip started. And uh, back then, if I wrote in like really big Sharpie letters, I could, I could read using my peripheral vision. So I had written my, my dad's number and I, and I held it in a trembling hand and I smoked furiously with my other hand and I, and I was like, is he gonna fucking reject me again? Is he going to hang up on me? Like, wh- I don't know, but I had to try. So I dial, I dial the number, and I hear that, that foreign ringing, and then, and then my dad's voice picks up. And my dad has a very particular voice. Like, he sounds exactly like, like Nick Charles of The Thin Man, you know, that novel by Dashiell Hammett, or there's just like Nick and Nora, and they're these glamorous people who just laze around their Manhattan apartment, drinking cocktails and solving murders all day long. And maybe you're wondering, like, how does your dad sound like a character in a novel? And I tell you what, he sounds exactly like the audible version of the narrator who reads The Thin Man. And I'm not even getting paid by Audible to say that. <laughs> and, the, and, and his attitude is right, right along these lines, too. Like, my favorite line in this book where it was like, um, you know, Nick is telling the story of the crime so far. And he's like, oh, I'm parched. Bring me a drink, which is kind of how I feel like right now. But, um, and Nora says, well, shouldn't you have breakfast first? And, and Nick is like, oh, it's too early for breakfast. So that's my dad, like sort of blasé and decadent, right? So I didn't know that at the time, but all I heard was this, this voice. And he said, hello. And I said, hi, dad, this is your daughter, um, I'm in the neighborhood and thought I'd give you a call. And he said, no. Hi, kiddo. What neighborhood? I said, I'm in your neighborhood. I'm in Wiesbaden. And he said, oh, do you have plans for dinner this evening? And I look over at Indigo and I'm like, no, I'm pretty free. <laughs> and he said, okay, I'll pick you up at six. So it would turn out that my dad and his nurse practitioner wife would indeed get us a, a brace for Indigo and we'd be able to get back on our, on our trek after just a little bit of a delay. But this night, it was all about me and my dad. On our, on our first father-daughter date, we, we had this beautiful dinner and we talked and we had wine and then we had appetizers and then we both pulled out our packs of cigarettes and we got to smoke at the table. The good old days. I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. And it was around that time, like maybe just before, just after the entree, when my dad said to me, how did you get to be so much like your old man? And I was like, I don't know. I guess a taste for the good life is in the genes. And then after dinner, we walked through the misty streets of Wiesbaden holding hands. And my dad, perhaps ironically, has never been much of a thin man. So... His hand was a little bit budgy, but strong and gentle, and we got to the hotel, and he said, I'm glad you called, kiddo. I love you. And I said, I love you too, Dad. And I will never forget the exuberant bounding I did uh, down this enormous chandelier drooping hallway that was made for international delegations, but was at that moment empty, except for me and my joy of finding a dad. A couple of years later, my dad and his wife moved back to the States, and first they moved to a um, California gold country where my dad becomes mayor of uh, the bustling metropolis of Amador City, population 52. <laughs> and then they finally make their way back to his hometown of San Francisco. And during all this time, I moved from San Francisco to New Orleans to New York, where I lived for many years, and then just recently here to Denver. Yay! <laughs> And during that time, we we kept in touch. We would have our weekly cocktail hour, and we would talk about politics and all the musicals he'd seen, because my dad loves his musicals. That is one gene I did not inherit from him. (laughs) 
And during all this time, I moved from being a visually impaired person to being a blind person. And my dad moved from being an able-bodied person to being a disabled person. A degenerative neuropathy had moved from the bottoms of his feet to his knees and from his fingertips to his elbows, leaving his hands like mittens, his feet like blocks. When he stopped being able to feel the pedals of his Jeep, he had to stop driving. And he and his wife had been accustomed to doing these marvelous vacations. They had been all over the world, over a hundred countries, all seven continents. And now his wife started doing these without him. And he was left at home more and more. And he would say to me all the time, he would say, I'm not going to stop her. If I could still be doing the same thing, I'd still be doing it. You know, my dad was such a lover of the good life that he would never stop anybody that he loved from enjoying it. He began to get these terrible wounds in his feet uh, that wouldn't heal because he couldn't feel at the bottoms of his feet. He couldn't feel anything. And then he got these infections, and the infections became life-threatening. And then a couple years ago, he called and he said, they want to chop off my feet. I was like, Dad, that is really terrible, but it sounds like a kind of an obvious choice. It sounds like it's either your feet or your life. And he said, I know, I know, but how am I going to do the things that I still can do, like take a shower? And I was like, Dad, they're doing amazing things with prosthetics these days. You know, people are climbing mountains and shit. But he couldn't bring himself to that level of disability. It, it scared him. He would say to me, shit, I, I don't even know why I'm complaining to you. You're blind. And I was like, but I'm okay. <laughs> I've been going, I've been moving into this disability thing my whole life. And, and I'm okay with it. I'm actually kind of proud to be part of a marginalized group on the rise. <laughs> disability is the new diversity. I'll have you know. But it, it wasn't for my dad, and uh, he died on August 19th. And I miss him like crazy, but I still feel like I could call him at any minute and hear his voice. You know, he's still so present to me. And he has never been more present than during one of our last meals together. You know, one in five Americans has a disability. One in five, and most of them are older people. One in five of you out there, sitting there, either has or will have a disability. So I don't understand why we all cling to this mythical, potent, able-bodied self. You know, we're all precariously able. We're all precariously able, and when we learn this, we have a chance of accepting our end-of-life situations, you know? But at best, we have moments of intimacy as disabled people that able-bodied people can only imagine. I'm standing in the kitchen my dad's kitchen, and he, his wheelchair can't fit in there. I'm holding a handle of beef eater and his wine glass, uh, because the wine glass is the last thing he can pick up with just one hand. He can put his hand around it and lift the glass. No feeling necessary. And he's sitting at, his, at the dining room table, and I'm holding it up, and I say, Hold, tell me when, Dad. And, and he's like, more, 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 Stop. And then I pick up my very sturdy tumbler that I'm not going to be apt to knock over, and I stick my finger in it, as all self-respecting blind people do when pouring booze. And I pour myself a healthy portion of gin. And then I very carefully make my way through the, like, African masks and cuckoo clocks and all this shit. I mean, like, really nice, really nice bric-a-brac that's, that they've collected over their years of travel. And I get to the dining room table, and then I go back to the kitchen through the skill and charybdis of bric-a-brac. And then and I'm in the kitchen. I'm like, what's for snacks, Dad? And he says, okay, in the, turn left, turn left. Okay, in the corner, over there, feel around, and there should be a box of crackers. 
and I'm feeling around. And I'm like, here, these? And, and then he, he says, uh, no, those are cookies. And then I pick up another box, and he says, okay, those are the crackers. And so in this way, we assemble our snacks, prosciutto and pate and cookies and crackers, and I make my way back through the burger rack, and then he, he, he says, okay, open up that prosciutto. And I've, all I've got is a butter knife, so I'm sort of hacking at this Trader Joe's package, and I'm like muttering my, my difficulties. I'm like, oh, man, this is really hard, as if you can't see me perfectly well. <laughs> And this is all very discomforting because my dad, amongst all of his wonderful traits, happened to have been uh, an amateur gourmet chef who, who would like whip up eight-course meals for 10 or 12 intimates for fun. So this like fumbling with food in front of him is a little, a little uncomfortable. But anyways, I get the prosciutto open and I slap a slimy stack of prosciutto on his plate. I stack, slap a slimy stack on, try saying that eight times, on my plate. And then he says, take a, take a breadstick. Okay, give me a breadstick. And he says, you're going to roll the prosciutto around the breadstick like flesh over bone. And I'm like, no problem. This is like totally tactile, way easier than rolling a joint. <laughs> and so I roll over the breadstick. And then, and then, and then, but for my dad, I hear my dad go, shit. And then like a delicate snap and the breadstick falls to the floor. And I'm like, Dad, do, do you want me to roll you up one? And he says, yeah. And so I roll him up one, and I give it to him, and he's like, mm, good. And I mm, roll myself one up, and I say, mm, good. And we do this a bunch of times. And then, uh, and then I'm like, wait, what, what's with the pate, Dad? Because I love my pate. And he said, okay, you're going to take a cracker, put a little pate on there, and then a little dollop of, of Dijon. And I said, okay, and I do it. And I try and hand it to him, but not being able to see... I can't really put it into his hand and not being able to feel, you can't take it without snapping it in two. And so after a few frustrating attempts and a lot of pate lost in the effort, <laughs> we, we hit upon the expediency of me holding the cracker out sort of in the direction of his face, <laughs> whereupon he grasps my wrist with his hand and he shoves the cracker <laughs> along with my fingers into his mouth and he's like mmm that's good and, and I make myself one and I'm like mmm that is good and we do this over and over and over again and the gin helps us to forget the rather unsanitary way in which I'm putting the knife into the pate and then into the Dijon and then sort of pushing the toppings over back onto the crackers with my fingers that have nine times out of ten been in my dad's mouth and I know that I will never, ever forget this moment that my dad let me help him, at least for a little while, enjoy one of his last tastes of the good life. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. seems to be the ideal mm, The good life lets you hide all the sadness you feel When I was 10 and my sister was 17, our family changed forever. Our family changed forever because when my dad walked up the stairs, he decided that instead of turning right into my room, he was going to turn left into my sister's room. And if he had turned right into my room, he would have seen me playing with my toys. <laughs> but by turning left into my sister's room, door open, he saw her having sex with her high school boyfriend, Abdul. And after the screaming stopped, I was instructed that we wouldn't be communicating much with my sister anymore. 
and that I wasn't to set a place for her at the table when we ate dinner, and that my mom considered herself a failure as a mother because her daughter had sex before she graduated from high school. Now, hearing this, you might think that I grew up somewhere conservative, like the South. (laughs) You'd be right. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The South is the kind of place where, even before public school football games, they prey on the field. And the South is the kind of place where when I told my swim team coach I wasn't sure if I believed in God or not, she brought a Bible to my house. And the South is the kind of place that when people talk about immigration, and they are always talking about immigration, they would look at me with my dark hair and my dark eyes, and after a summer on swim team, my tan skin. And they would say what's that last name again? Or they'd just speak to me in Spanish. And when I would tell them, I'm just a white girl, they would always look at me suspiciously and say, nah, there's, there's something else there. Now, you might also assume that I have conservative parents. I don't. <laughs> uh, my parents are hip liberal atheists. My parents donate to liberal causes, and um, my parents smoke a lot of weed, and my parents have had a mini fridge of LaCroix next to their bed as long as I can remember. (laughs) And my parents are some of the most open-minded, kind people I've ever met especially my mother. My mother is the person who starts that thing in coffee lines where everybody pays for the person behind them. And my mother, who still uses Outlook, (laughs) um, she has contacts for like everybody she's ever met. And in those contacts, she has notes on what everybody's birthday is and maybe what their favorite cake is and what their pet's name is because My mother wants to make sure that every time she talks to someone, they feel special. But my mother is really sensitive to the idea of her daughters having sex because a number of times from age eight through her first marriage, my mother was raped. And every time a man did this to my mother, they took a piece of her and they replaced it with a sickness. And most days we got my mother, but a lot of days all we got was her sickness. I remember hearing my mother sobbing after a manic 15-hour work day, door closed, anything to put food on the table for her economically fragile family. And I remember hearing the sound of dishes break after our family doctor accidentally prescribed my mom's steroids. And I remember hearing my dad come back to my room and say, just stay in here for right now, okay? Just, just stay in here. And I remember hearing my mom's tires squeal as she peeled out of the driveway and drove to anywhere where this family she could not stand right now wasn't. And I remember hearing after my mom's suicide attempt that we weren't going to be speaking to my mom's side of the family anymore because it was just too painful and that my mom was really sick and she was going to be getting help and that my mom was sorry. She was really, really sorry. When the dark days would become light again, A lot of times we would hear my mother say, Charlie, my life is a series of overcorrections. But it was too late for my sister. She was only a couple months away from going to college, and at 17, she moved out of the house. I didn't get that option. 
I was only 10, and even though it was my sister who made the mistake, she wasn't the only person who had to pay for it. And at 10, my parents made me promise that I wouldn't have sex until I graduated from high school. And I was 10, I said yes. <laughs> I, I didn't even wanna kiss a boy. Um, but the truth is, is that I would have probably said yes to anything they asked because when you have a parent who is mentally ill, the idea of being a problem or a burden to them is crippling. The last thing I wanted to do was be a burden to my parents. If that meant getting good grades, fine. If that meant being the star in the school play, fine. And if that meant not having sex until after I graduated from high school, fine. But when I was 15, I met Josh. <laughs> uh, and Josh was hot. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to kiss Josh. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> but kissing Josh taught me that one day I might want to do more than just kiss a boy. And if that day ever came, and I messed up, I needed to be prepared. So when I was 17, I got a job. And when I got a job, I got to have a bank account. And with that bank account, I transferred $50 every week from my checking to my savings until I had $500. And that $500 was going to be my abortion fund. <laughs> Because I knew that if I got pregnant, I could never tell my parents. I never had to use it. I made it through high school unscathed. But when I was a freshman in college, I realized that if I wanted to have a fling with somebody, I could like totally have a fling with somebody. And Chad was the perfect person. Chad was a boy who was a year older than me and we had art class together. And Chad and I, had one time made out in the dark room of art class, and it was one of the most romantic moments of my life, still. <laughs> and Chad was gonna be home for winter break from his very Christian private college, and so I sent Chad a text and said, you wanna meet up? Uh, and he said yes. <laughs> So I suggested a Starbucks near his house. And when we walked into that Starbucks, it was like two magnets just slamming together. <laughs> we got our coffee and we sat down and he's like putting his leg all on my leg. And like, I think we're like two sips into our coffee. And I'm like, I have to have Chad. <laughs> and so we're, like, we're 10 minutes in. I say, do you want to get out of here? And he goes, yes. <laughs> And so we go to my car, and we got a little bit of a problem, because we're close to his house, but his parents are home, and I don't think they would take too kindly his Christian, conservative, very white parents uh, to us fucking in his bedroom. But we're too far from my dorm room to get there and back for his 7.30 dinner. So we do the next best thing we look for an under-construction house. <laughs> now, under-construction houses have always had really good memories for me. Um, me and my dad had a Saturday tradition where we would go to the farmer's market, and then on the way back, especially if it was a dark day, we would stop at the under-construction houses in the neighborhood, and we would walk from room to room and talk about what we thought they'd look like someday and whether or not a happy family would live there. And I don't think I knew that you couldn't just like wander around them. <laughs> Um, so we pulled up to another construction house and we like sneak through the red clay and past the barrier. And then we're standing in this living room that is barely a living room. It's mostly plywood at this point. And 
you can still smell the sawdust from the day's work and it's cold and it's dark and it's crisp and we go upstairs to the second floor and we lay down we start making out and he takes off his jacket and I take off my jacket and then I take off my shirt and at that moment the moon decides to adjust just a little bit and now it's shining in through the window and onto us and I'm looking into Chad's eyes and I'm thinking about how this is nothing like what my mother described her experiences being like at this age. It's, it's not violating or scarring. It's not shameful or hurtful. It feels good and it feels right. For one of the first times in my entire life, I feel sexy. And more than anything, I feel beautiful. But I also feel terrified because at that moment, I see a flashlight scan the room. And I hear this thundering voice from downstairs say, Police, is there anybody up there? And we just freeze. Um, but then we yell back, we're just some kids, we're just some stupid teenagers. And we leave behind these full coffee cups and we yank our shirts back on and we put on our jackets and we go down the stairs and we go down the stairs straight into the barrel of two policemen's guns. And I had never seen a gun before. And now I had two pointed at my head. And they frisk us and they lead us back out that barrier and back through that red clay and they sit us on the hood of their cop car. And one of them stays behind with us while one of them goes to call it in and I can hear him say, oh, it's just some kids, it's just some teenagers. And I turn to the one that's, that's still with me and I say, if you, if you didn't know it was us, who did you think it was? And he looked at me and he said, we got a report of a Mexican stealing copper. (laughs) And I realized that somebody had looked at me and just because of the way I looked, somebody had thought I was a criminal. But I'm sitting on the hood of a cop car and I am a criminal. But I'm snapped back to reality because he's not done talking to me. And he looks at me the same way every southern good old boy looks at me. And he says, you know, I wish you hadn't said nothing tonight. We were hoping to shoot somebody. They end up not taking us in. But they release us with matching trespassing misdemeanors at $500 a pop. (laughs) I never speak to Chad again, but I pay that ticket from my mother's desk on Christmas Day after I had snuck away from our family celebrations and saw that it had finally posted online. In the next 10 years, my family would all relocate to the West Coast. And my mom got help, and she apologized. And then she messed up again, and she apologized some more. But overall, we're a happy family. We're happy enough that even when the dark days come back again, we often say one of my mom's favorite phrases, at least we still get to be us. 
I try to visit them a couple times a year, and I was up there recently, and I interrupted my mom's morning routine of uh, coffee and crosswords and Candy Crush. And I asked her if I could tell her about a part of me she didn't know, but I thought she should know, and I was really, really sorry for. She said, of course. (laughs) And I told her the story that I just told all of you. And my mom started hooting and hollering and crying so hard I thought she was going to piss her pants. (laughs) And I told her how I paid for it. (laughs) And she looked at me and she said, Charlie, why would you have an abortion fund? You know your father and I, we would, we would pay for something like that. <laughs> and I told her that if that ever happened to me, she would, she would never, ever know. And the room got more serious. And she met my eyes and she said, Charlie, If you ever got an abortion, I hope that you would tell me. I hope that you would tell me because you know I would fly down there and Charlie, I would go with you and Charlie, I would be with you and make sure that you were all right. And I would love you exactly as much as I love you right now. In that moment, a thought crystallized for me. That perfect wasn't what my mother wanted from me or for me. She had just wanted me. Thank you. Tera mukhda, chanda tukhda, ne teri anak tere shu. Kya baat hai? Kya baat hai? Ne tera kajal karta hai, pagal hypnotize kare jatnu. Kya baat hai? Kya baat hai? Tere lag to lag to karachi di, fan mari jaliya bugati di. This is Risk. Every now and then I play a song on the show for no logical reason. This is just a song that I keep hearing in my deli, at my gym, at the restaurant around the corner. It's a pop song out of India uh, by Hardy Sandhu. So now it's following you around, too. Before that, a story by Charlie Rucker that she shared uh, the last time Risk was in Portland, Oregon. And before that, just a little tiny bit of something from Tony Bennett. Now, the holidays can be the busiest time of year, you know, like you end up with a lot more errands, extra errands to be running. Another thing you end up having to do a lot more of around the holidays is your mailing, right? That's why Stamps.com is especially convenient at this time of year. It saves you so much time not having to go to the post office and, you know, wait in line and all, make a special trip. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. post office to your desktop. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer, and then the mail carrier picks it up. No trips required. It couldn't be easier. You know, we use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we print postage any time of day that we want, and we save money because Stamps.com helps you print the right amount of postage every time. You're never overpaying because of the way that you're measuring it out. With Stamps.com, you get discounts on postage that you can't even get at the post office. So with all the time and money you'll save, Stamps.com is a great gift you can give yourself 
this holiday season. And right now, you can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Our final story on this week's episode is a real stunner. This is the story that closed the show that we did in Vancouver when we were there this past summer. Sam Blackman is a doctor. You can find him on Twitter, at Dr. Sam. You can also find a bunch of other stories he's told on his YouTube channel, at Sam Blackman. Here he is now. This is Sam Blackman with a story we call Boundaries. Almost 30 years ago, when I was 22, I had graduated from college in Chicago, and I decided really late that I wanted to go to medical school, but I had just terrible grades. I had studied philosophy. I really hadn't applied myself. And so to pass the time while I was trying to get into medical school, I took a research job at anesthesia, which was incredibly low paying. And so to supplement my income, I got a job as the part-time EKG technician. And, And it was a great job. It paid by the hour. And to be the EKG technician, you had a pager and you had an EKG machine on a cart. And when the pager would go off, you'd trundle your cart through the hospital and you'd do the EKG on whatever patient uh, needed one. And it was terrific. I worked these long overnight shifts and I got to see all areas of the hospital. And one Sunday I was working and I got called to the medical intensive care unit. And this is a hospital that's on the south side of Chicago. So I expected what I typically would find in the medical intensive care unit, an unconscious patient, an African-American man on a ventilator. And those were really the best patients because the EKG test is very sensitive. And if you move around a lot, it screws up the test. And so a paralyzed and sedated patient was my favorite kind of patient. And I walked into the room and much to my surprise, it really took me aback was a 19-year-old girl sitting on top of a hospital bed, freshly made bed, crisp sheets, watching television. And I noticed two things about her. The first thing that I noticed immediately was that she was yellow. She was yellow as a daffodil. And the second thing that I noticed about her was that she was very, very pretty, And I was this very nerdy, awkward medical school wannabe, and that made what I was about to do absolutely terrifying to me because I had to have her lay down, and I had to untie her thin white hospital gown with the little blue paisleys on it, and I had to pull down her top, and I had to put this white cream, these dollops of white cream on her. I had to put one on each shoulder and one on the top of each thigh, and one on the either side of her sternum, and then drops around the contours of her left breast. And then I would have to take these little metal cups that had these little gray suction bulbs and I'd have to use the cream to get them to stick to the body. And I'd fiddle with the EKG machine and the test would come out. And I remember thinking to myself like, dude, you cannot think of this patient like that. Like you are supposed to be a professional. Get that out of your head. Um, So at the end, to sort of diffuse this moment of mutually awkward, semi-intimate moment, I said to her, so why are you here in the hospital? Which is the stupidest question to ask because she was like jaundiced to her eyeballs. And she said that she had gotten sick over the past couple of weeks. She had developed liver failure, actually very serious liver failure, and had been diagnosed at her small town hospital in Illinois. And they... Uh, were so concerned about it. It was actually a medical emergency that they airlifted her from central Illinois up to Chicago because she needed a liver transplant. And in 1991, a liver transplant was a big deal. And they moved her up there so quickly that her parents hadn't even had time to fly with her. They had to drive up behind her. And she had never been to Chicago before, so she was completely and totally freaked out. And so I said, you know, listen... um, you know, when I'm done with my shift, I'm more than happy to like come back and keep you company until your parents get there. And she said that she would really like for me to do that. And so I finished my shift and then I came back and I sat with her and, and we just sat and we chit chatted for a few hours. And, 
you know, I told her about my life in the city and she told me about her life in her small town. And after a while, her parents got up there and when they met me, they were just super duper grateful that I had taken the time to spend with her daughter because she was so scared about being in the hospital. And now back in those days, you could only visit patients in the intensive care unit for 15 minutes at a time at the top of the hour and really only from like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. But I was doing research in anesthesia and my ID was like an all access pass to the hospital. And so I said, you know, listen, if it would help, I could check in on Mary Beth. That was her name, Mary Beth. I could check in at times when you couldn't come. And they were super duper grateful. And they immediately took me up on this offer. And what ended up happening over the next week is that I would stop in to check on her. And then her parents, who were not medically sophisticated at all, would begin peppering me with questions because they could not understand what was going on and they could not understand what was about to happen to their daughter. And I had just enough medical knowledge that I ended up being their translator from medical to English. Now, over the course of the week, as liver failure progresses, Mary Beth got sicker and sicker. And so I would stop by more and more and her parents were increasingly reliant upon me. And then one Friday morning, I stopped by and she was gone. Poof. Room completely turned over. Monitors off, television off, freshly made bed. And typically in the hospital, that means only one of two things. And so fearing the worst, I ran down to the operating room and it turned out that she'd gotten a donor liver overnight in the middle of the night was in the operating room. Now, because I was doing research in anesthesia, I had access to the operating room. So I rushed down to the operating room suite and I could actually see her undergoing her liver transplant. And it's a very strange thing to see somebody that you've gotten to know completely and totally filleted open, reinforcing something that I've come to learn over 30 years of medicine, which is that you really should not see the intestines of somebody that you care about. <laughs> now, after the operation, she was sedated for a day and back in the intensive care unit. And I was there when she woke up and I was standing by the side of her bed when they took the breathing tube out with her parents. And I'm standing there with my hands on the metal railing. And one of the first things that she does when she opens her eyes is she reaches up, she looks at me, she reaches out and she holds my hand and she mouths to me, I love you. And I'm completely and totally taken aback because there are these boundaries in medicine where you don't allow your patients to fall in love with you and you don't fall in love with your patients. Professional boundaries. But I wasn't a doctor, I was this part-time EKG technician, I was this medical school wannabe, but I still didn't know what to do. And I thought to myself, good Lord, what do I do now? And I didn't say anything because I knew that I couldn't. Now, over the next couple of months, I ended up falling into this routine where I would routinely stop by and spend free time that I had with Mary Beth because she was taking a very long time to recover from this liver transplant. And, you know, when the uh, treating team said she needed to get, get up out of bed, I would help her sometimes walk. And on the weekends when I was working and she was there, I'd put her in a wheelchair and I'd wheel her around this old historic hospital, showing her all my favorite parts of the hospital. And we would talk and keep each other company. And at nights, if I didn't have anything to do, which was often, I'd come back to the hospital and I'd sit in her room with her and we'd watch movies. And even today, looking back, it's hard for me to interpret what was going on. I knew that there were these professional boundaries, but I also cared very much for Mary Beth, and I'd become a part of her life in a way that, well, that went well beyond caring for her as a patient. She was a little bit younger than me, and she was a patient. I was very, very confused because I had no real professional role, but I was playing one. I was working towards one. And the other thing that made it really weird is that I was embraced by her family and her family saw me in this way that I had never seen myself. They depended on me. They trusted me. They saw me as important, as smart and dedicated and as essential to her care. And what made it even more confusing was that the intensive care unit nurses who are usually very ferocious and very territorial accepted me in this role. They should have been saying, what the hell are you doing here? Like there are only so many EKGs that this patient needs. <laughs> but they, they invited me in. About a month after getting her liver transplant, it was clear that something was wrong. Mary Beth wasn't getting any better. Her jaundice was clearing up, but her blood counts were dropping and nobody knew why. And it turns out after a while, they said that she had developed this condition called aplastic anemia, which is bone marrow failure that makes you very susceptible to uh, infections. And it's a very rare complication of liver transplantation. 
And unfortunately, she was so sick from her liver transplant that she could not be effectively treated for her aplastic anemia, and that treatment would require a bone marrow transplant. And every day I would check the laboratories looking for some glimmer of signs that her blood counts were going to recover. And I would go to the medical library and I'd pour through the medical literature at night looking for anything about bone marrow failure after liver transplantation like I, the 22-year-old EKG technician, was somehow miraculously going to find the cure. And one day I was in Mary Beth's room when the treating physicians came in and said that they had bad news. They said, it appears that you've developed a fungal infection in your lungs because of the bone marrow failure. And when they snapped an e uh, a uh, x-ray film up on to the light box, I said to myself, that is really bad. And I don't even need to be a doctor to know that because in the field of her left lung, you could see this hole and inside of the hole was this ball. And I knew what that ball was. It was fungus growing inside of her lungs. And she was too sick to operate on to cut out the fungus, and so they tried all these different medications, but they were unable to clear the infection. And with an active fungal infection, you cannot go on to bone marrow transplantation. And they kept trying and trying to clear the infection medically, but nothing happened. And at the end of another week or so, the treating team came in, this big clot of white coats looking very somber, and the lead physician said to Mary Beth and her parents, we're so very sorry we're unable to control the infection and we really don't have any other options right now. And as I sat off to the side of the room and I watched Mary Beth fully awake, fully aware, I realized she was listening to these people in the white coats telling her that she was going to die and die soon in a week, 10 days, two weeks. The 22 year old EKG technician sitting and listening to someone deliver a death sentence to an 18 year old girl. And there was one evening, maybe three or four days before she died, when her parents actually gave us an hour alone so that we could say goodbye to each other. And I helped her sit up on the edge of the bed. And by that time, the nurses had started removing some of the wires for her monitors because they didn't need to monitor her so closely. And it was the first time we actually held each other. And I remember holding her, and I remember the smell of the hospital mixed with the smell of liver failure on her breath. It's a very distinctive smell. And I remember her face puffy from the steroids and fuzzy, which is a side effect of the immunosuppressants. And Mary Beth said, I loved you. I thought that we were going to have a future together. And somewhere inside me, I knew that just a little bit of me had envisioned a future for us as well. Some absurd notion of her getting better and my being that heroic figure in her life who was there for her and who had helped her family. And that somehow there was going to be this fairy tale ending, this very sick girl, tragically sick girl from a small town and this big city medical student. And where there's going to be some future for us, but it was clear that there's only going to be one outcome. And in my head, I could hear the two voices paddling, one saying, Tell her what you feel, for Christ's sake. She's dying. And the other one saying, you can't go there. You can't go there. You can't go there. Now, not long after, Mary Beth became less and less lucid from the combination of infection and from liver failure. And it was clear one day that she was prof profoundly moribund, that she was going to die. And I remember spending the afternoon in her room with her mother and father, literally watching her die. And the monitors were on, and we would be hypnotized by the monitors, watching her heart rate get slower and watching her respirations get faster until the nurses finally came in and turned them off. And so all that we were left to do was to pace around the room and watch her breathing more and more rapidly more and more shallowly. And I was there at the moment of her death, and it was the first time that I had ever watched somebody actively die. And I was standing in the corner by the windows and listening to her panting, and then all of a sudden, she took this huge gasp, <gasps> and her eyes opened as wide as I thought that they could open. And I swear inside my head, I heard this pop, this popping sound, like a hole had opened up in the universe and had sucked her soul out. And then she let all of the air out and her eyes fell halfway. And then about 30 seconds later, she took another huge gasp and her back arched and her eyes opened. And then all the air came out and she died. And I was standing there in the corner of the room and I was watching her parents cry over her and I was standing there holding my hands over my mouth like I wanted to hold my breath in. 
And one of the nurses, Cindy, who had helped take care of her, came in and said to her parents, whisper to her, talk to her, she can still hear you. And her parents talked to her, and then they invited me over and told me to say goodbye. And I remember bending down and kissing her still warm forehead and whispering into her ear, I love you too. Later that evening, after her parents left, I was lingering around the nurse's station in the ICU. I was feeling completely and totally shell-shocked and lost. And I was ready to go home when Cindy, one of the nurses, made me stay behind. And she made me walk into Mary Beth's room, which now had all of the lights on and the body under the sheet. And they drew the curtains across the door for the room. And they made me, the nurses made me help them prepare her body for the morgue. They helped me, made me help undress her completely. They made me help pull out the tubes and the IVs and the drains. And I remember cutting the stitches on a drain in her side and pulling a tube out through her now cold flesh. And I said to them, why are you doing this to me? This is horrible. Why are you doing this to me? And they said, we need to get you back on your side of the line. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, we've watched you. We think that you have a career in medicine. We think you're going to be a really good doctor, but you need to be back on our side of the line, on the doctor side of a line, where you don't fall in love with your patients, where your patients don't fall in love with you, where you don't get so enmeshed with your patients' lives that you get emotionally clobbered time and time again because you'll never last. And so they made me finish and put her into a body bag and put her into this special morgue cart, which has a false bottom so that nobody can tell that you're wheeling a dead body through the hospital. And they made me wheel her down to the morgue. I went to Mary Beth's funeral a week later. I stayed overnight at her house with her parents. I slept in her brother's room. I left flowers on her grave, a dozen red roses. Her mother told me that those were her favorites. And one day, a few weeks later, I was driving home in my crappy used car, and my grief finally caught up with me. There was a song on the radio. I don't know what it was, but it was enough to loosen the screw top on everything that I'd been holding in. And I started to cry, and then I started to cry harder, and I started crying so hard I couldn't drive, and I actually pulled over onto the side of the road, just racked with grief, crying hysterically, uncontrollably. And people would drive up and stop behind my car and knock on the window to check and see if I was okay. And I would see them through the window and I could not even respond to them because I was crying so uncontrollably. A white kid, the part-time EKG technician, crying in a shitty used car on the south side of Chicago. And I grieved for the loss of Mary Beth. In the 30 years since, I ended up becoming a pediatric oncologist, and it's partly because of the lessons that I learned during those months. I always respected the line. I never violated doctor-patient boundaries like that. But I was one of those doctors who was always willing to push up against it. I would give my parents, of my patients, my cell phone number. I'd make house calls. I'd go to funerals. I'd go to autopsies. I never crossed the boundary, but knowing where it was and knowing how much I could push against it allowed me to be the type of doctor that my patients needed. It allowed me to be the type of doctor that I needed to be, and I wouldn't change a thing. It was, in fact, one of the most important lessons that I learned in my life, and looking back on this very confusing episode that I've actually never told anybody about before, I realized that I had gotten this extraordinary gift from Mary Beth and her family, and it's the reason why after 30 years I'll never forget her. I thank you very much.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Jeff Buckley behind me now, and we just heard from Sam Blackman. Look him up on Twitter, at Dr. Sam. And if you want to see Risk live, information about where we're appearing next is always at risk-show.com slash tour. And don't forget, Another thing you can buy for friends and family this holiday season are storytelling classes. You know, we do one-on-one training over Skype through the storystudio.org, or there are our video courses that you can download and take in your own time. There are our in-person workshops. You can get gift certificates for those in New York, Los Angeles, or Minneapolis. And there's our corporate workshops. If you want to hire the Story Studio to come do a workshop for your business, that is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. This is what I have to deal with when recording the show. Little outburst from Donkey, who sits in a bed by my desk the whole day, just just kind of meowing for me to pay attention to him. What? He's a restless kitty cat.